Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. A lot of times we're on a I'm right quest, rather than a truth quest. We want to know what the truth is. We want to know whether or not we're believing what is correct. It's good to see you guys. We're going to get right into our first question today, which has to do with walking by the Spirit. And I want to show you a a verse, first of all, that helps us um, with just practical living for Christ. How do I overcome sin? How how can I walk by the, the Spirit rather than walking by the flesh? And so in Galatians 5, verse 16, it says, And so then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things that you wish. So this battle goes on inside of you. You have a desire because you're a genuine believer to do the things that Christ wants you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 1 John says that if you say you love him, and you don't keep his commandments, then you're lying. So there's this desire that we have when we are genuinely born again to do the things that God wants us to do. But we don't end up doing them because the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh. So the key comes in the beginning of these verses where it says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The question then is, how do we walk in the Spirit? We know that we are given the Holy Spirit at the moment that we are born again. Jesus said in John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We also know that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us, and it does that mainly through the Word of God. So the Spirit has inspired the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, literally meaning God breathed. The Holy Spirit is the one who has moved to put the Scriptures together. And it's profitable for direction, for doctrine, for correction, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. So that means that we, first of all, say, I want to know what God's Word says. What do I know about God's word? What does God want me to do? If you say, let's just say you're, you're, you're angry all the time and you're making no effort to walk in love, you're making no effort to walk in gentleness. Uh, Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be known to all men and you are just giving in to your anger and you're angry with people, you're angry on the road, you're angry with your kids. That's not walking by the spirit. When you say, I want to walk in gentleness. I want to walk in kindness. I want to do the things that the Bible tells me to do. I want to put away all wrath, malice, and anger. Then you are walking by the Spirit. Now also, the Spirit helps to lead us. So not only does it lead us by the Word of God, and that's the main way, and there's nothing that the Holy Spirit's ever going to speak to you that's going to go against the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit might convict you as you're driving down the road. You may be angry somebody pulled out in front of you and slowed down and the Holy Spirit convicts you and so you begin to pray for them. Now you're being directed by the Spirit. You're living by your Spirit rather than by your flesh and you are walking in the Spirit of God. We also know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we have self-control in there. We have kindness in there. These are signs that we are walking by the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Outbursts of wrath, heresies, um, sexual sin. These kind of things are the flesh. And when we live by the flesh, from the flesh we're going to reap corruption. But the Bible tells us But if we walk in the Spirit, from the Spirit we will reap life. So we want the life that comes from being led by the Spirit. This is one of the verses that I use regularly uh, in my own life to make sure that I'm living the kind of life that God wants me to live. It's also one of the passages that I use quite often when someone comes to me and has questions about 
some stronghold in their life or some sin that they seem to continue to turn to. Um, we should endeavor to walk in the Spirit the rest of today more than we've walked in the Spirit before. We should endeavor to walk in the Spirit tomorrow more than we've walked in the Spirit today. Now, I might not be able to walk in the Spirit more than any of you guys. Some of you guys, there's a person who's watching this right now who walks in the Spirit more than anybody else. And they may be way above any of the rest of us. But what I can do is walk in the Spirit more today or tomorrow, uh, more tomorrow than I am today and more the next day than I am that day. I can make an effort to say, I, the Bible tells me that if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I've been given the Holy Spirit as a gift from God. I have the Spirit inside of me when I'm born again. Therefore, I am going to walk in the Spirit. Uh, the word walk here in Galatians 5, 16 is an analogy, a metaphor for the Christian life. If I'm going to walk in the Spirit, it's the life that I'm living for Christ. And there's just something about making that commitment, saying to him, maybe even openly now, Lord, I'm, I want to walk in your spirit. Lord, help me to walk in your spirit. Uh, I want to be directed by your spirit. And if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, then are you walking by God's spirit? But if you're making every effort to do the things that God has called you to do, then you want to try your very best to make sure that you're walking by the spirit. So I want to welcome you, those of you guys who are joining us now. We are on YouTube uh, and Facebook. I'm looking on here. It looks like all of the comments that we have so far are from, uh, I've got one from Facebook and uh, several more from YouTube. Um, if you would like, if you're listening to this and you would like to join us live where you can ask questions, if you're listening to this on the podcast and you want to join us live, um, we do it for sure on Saturdays from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock. We take questions in the comment section, uh, write a cue down, and then your question, or write the word question, and then your question, and we'll take them uh, in the order that they come in and take a look at them. All right, so um, we have, uh, we want to welcome you guys too. We're really blessed that you guys are joining us. As I said, if you have any questions at all, all you've got to do is write the word question, question down and then, um, and we will get to it in the order that they're coming in. So we have um, a question from Jari. And Jari says, good to see you, Jari, by the way. Uh, Jari says, should churches still apply the Shekinah glory today? Some Christians think it is weird. Does Shekinah glory still apply? Thank you. Um, so the Shekinah glory was a glory that appeared in the temple in Old Testament times. And it was the glory of God. And there are churches today, mostly in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement, which will talk about the Shekinah glory showing up in their services. Uh, I do think it is weird. Can, could God have his spirit show up when we're worshiping in a visible way? Certainly, God could do that. But we don't ever find any direction in the Bible about it. We don't ever find it happening. Um, and so I don't think it's something that we should seek. I don't think we should be seeking extra biblical things, meaning things that are not in the Bible. And also when people talk about the, the Shekinah glory, it can be connected with some pride where we were at church and gold dust fell from heaven or the Shekinah glory appeared in our midst. And a lot of times it's connected with things that people try to use to say that they are legitimate. Where we know that legitimacy is connected to the scriptures. We look at the Bible, we see what the Bible has to say, and we determine whether what we're doing is right or wrong by the word of God. Not whether or not there's some kind of a shining glory that shows up. These are manifestations that you don't want to trust in because you want to trust in God's word and that's what you need. So my personal opinion is that the kind of glory showing up in a church service is weird. That's my personal opinion. Um, and I don't want to do anything like being slain in the spirit, which by the way, I 
coming out of the Methodist church when I was a teenager. I went to a Pentecostal church, went to Assembly of God church, went to a charismatic church, um, and then went to a Foursquare church, which is another Pentecostal church. Um, and so I have experiences with all of these things, and I know how people use them, and I don't think it should be something should we should be seeking at all. And I think these kind of things like um, the, when the preacher holds his Bible up and it's dripping with oil, or people say that they had their fillings replaced with gold fillings. Um, I don't think that these things are real or genuine, personally. And I don't think there should be any kind of things that we should seek. If God wants to do something, God can do it. He's not going to stop and ask me what I think about it. I just think that these things are often used to try to bring legitimacy to something that is not teaching what is legitimate in the Word of God. And that's not saying that all Pentecostal or Charismatic churches don't teach from the Word of God, because I believe that they do. But I believe oftentimes there's a danger to put more trust in experiences than in the Word of God. And that can be a problem. That can end up being problematic. So those are not the kind of things that I'm searching uh, searching for in my own personal walk at all. I want God to convict me. I want God to speak to me through his word. I want God to, to, to work in my life, to direct me and to guide me, um, but not the concept of the Shekinah glory, which was the glory showing up in the temple in the Old Testament times. So thank you very much, uh, Jari, for your question. I really do appreciate it. I want to um, welcome all of you guys who are joining us here today. I hope that you are blessed by the time that you spend um, with us. If you have a question, then you can write the word question out or put a question mark or a Q in front of it and um, then write out your question, maybe reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense and uh, we will go ahead and get to them um, hopefully in the order that they're coming in. Remember, they're coming in from a few different places from three different Facebook pages and from YouTube. And so sometimes um, they don't always show up here at the same time. So we have a question from Albert. Uh, Albert, good to see you. Hello, Pastor. Um, we know Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future uh, on the cross. So is 1 John 1, 9, or 1 John 1, 9, saying confession is a requirement for forgiveness or is it about restoration or both? Thanks. Thank you, Albert. Um, all right. So yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we have. And, and by the way, this is part of the gospel, right? First Corinthians fifteen. Jesus died for our sins, as foretold in the scriptures. That's the first part of the gospel, and so we look at the cross so that we can have our sins forgiven. There's a type in the Old Testament of the bronze serpent being lifted up in the wilderness because they had been bitten by serpents as a punishment from God. And then they put the bronze serpent up and they would look at a serpent and it was because they were bit by a serpent and God would deliver them. We know that this is a type of the cross that Jesus said, I'm as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, I must be lifted up so that we are bitten by sin and we look at the cross and Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so through that cross, when we look at Christ and receive him, all of our sins are forgiven. And I do believe that we are born again, past, present, and future. And um, so then the, the question is, why do I have to confess it? If all my sins are forgiven and things are right between me and God, then why do I have to confess it and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I sinned? Because although your sins are forgiven and you are given eternity, and it's about that relationship with God and the mercy that you've been given, your fellowship with God can still be broken with unconfessed, unrepented sin. So if you've got something in your life that you're just harboring, that you're not confessing, that can, that can separate you from the presence of God and Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that this was going to be times of refreshment that would come from the Lord. So you're missing out on times of refreshment that come from the Lord. It's like when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet. Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part in me. And then Jesus said, then Peter said, well, wash my head and my hands. And Jesus said, I don't need to wash your head and hands. All I need to do is wash your feet and you are totally clean. As we walk through this world, we sin. And so we confess it. And so we daily say, we, we, the same question could be asked, Albert, um, 
through the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who, who trespass against us. So why do I need to ask for forgiveness of sins if all of my sins are already forgiven? Because I need to make sure that my interaction with God is not being hindered. And, and we can easily see that. If I'm living in sin and it's unconfessed and I'm making excuses for it, I can see why God would, there would be a distance between me and God. My fellowship with God would be broken and we don't want our fellowship broken. And so we call out to him. We ask him to forgive us. We repent. And maybe there's some who are watching and listening right now and you need to repent. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. And also remember there are strongholds. Uh, behavioral issues. You've done things for a long time. You've practiced them. And when you practice something, it becomes, it becomes something you don't think about. There are certain things that you do. If you practice a sport, basketball, and you practice shooting, you practice shooting, and you get the technique just right, and you practice it, and you practice it, then you're going to do that all of the time. I used to coach basketball when my oldest son was younger and we would go over the fundamentals and go over the fundamentals and go over the fundamentals. And the reason was is because we wanted these kids not to be thinking about the fundamentals. We wanted them to think about something else. And so when we walk with Christ, when we are walking in, in the spirit, then that can become a practice, but so can sin. And we can end up being separated from God for long periods of time. And maybe there are some of you now that times of refreshment haven't come from the Lord for a long time. And you haven't had that close fellowship with him because you're under the discipline of God. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those who he loves. The, um, and the discipline of the God is grievous. It's not pleasant at all. It's grievous. And so you want to get rid of those things so you are under the disciplining of God. But God wants there to be a great fruit that would come from it. And so we confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, I keep extremely short accounts with God. I, I like to say to him every time I pray, Lord, forgive me. Help me. I realize there are sins in my life that I don't even know about. The Bible says, deliver me from my hidden faults that have dominion over me. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my ways. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so I want um, God's spirit to be moving in my life. I want things right between him. I want to pray daily for forgiveness. And um, this has nothing to do with my salvation, but it has everything to do with walking with God daily, having that close, intimate, daily interaction with the living God. All right. So thank you very much, um, Albert. I appreciate it. Our next question comes from Amy. And Amy gives us a reference of Romans 9, 13. Uh, she says, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. The scripture has bothered my husband since he was a kid. Can you please explain why God said he hated Esau? Let me go to Romans chapter 9. And we will, yeah, let me just take a moment uh, to go ahead and go there and find that verse. I want to read it in context. And I do believe, by the way, that I'm going to be able to help you out. Amy, help your husband out with um, this passage because it does seem to be, um, you know, God loves the, the world, right? God so loved the world. In the Old Testament, it says God hates every evildoer. Um, and so we know that hate is used and love is used in different ways um, in the pages of Scripture. Um, so it's uh, Romans 9, 13. Um, but let me read it from verse 6. Let me go ahead and put you up here, put this up on the screen for you. Oops, that's not the right one. Uh, that's not the right one either. There we go. That's the one that I want. All right. So we want to pick it up, Israel's rejection and God's purpose. So this section of scripture is talking about Israel rejecting Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, as the Messiah. That's what this passage is talking about. And it's talking about the way that God has set them aside 
this whole section, 9, 10, 11, that God has set Israel aside for a time, and we know that they are all going to be saved. The context of this chapter is not individuals, it is a group of people. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, um, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are all Israel who are of, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So he's saying that not everybody who is from Abraham, same thing Jesus said when he's told the scribes and Pharisees, don't think that you're okay because you have Abraham as your father. Don't think that just because you're Jewish that you are automatically saved. It goes on to say, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. In Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. That is those who are the children. Um, that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. As this time I came to Sarah and have, um, and you shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet born, not having any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls us, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So you can see by the context that he's talking about nations. He's not talking about individuals. In fact, I think an argument can be made that he blessed Esau. You can go back into the Old Testament and you can look at those passages. Esau was a man who lived after the flesh for sure. And God knew through his foreknowledge what Esau would do and what Jacob would do. But he's talking about Jacob as the nation of Israel. And, this, and, and we could go to a lot of Old Testament passages where Israel is called Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel means rule by God. Jacob means supplanter. Jacob was a manipulator. God gave him a new name. From now on, you will no longer be a manipulator, but you will be ruled by God. So God chose to love Israel because God chose to love them. Not because there was anything special in them, but because God established the nation, wanted the Messiah to come through it, chose to give his love. But the Esau and their descendants, which is the Edomites, God hated because they rejected him. They turned to sin. They turned away from him. And so God's talking about these two groups of people. And especially, this is a quote from the Old Testament. And when you go back to the Old Testament, you see again, the context is with groups of people. He's not saying, I chose without any thought um, or without any justification to hate Esau and to love Jacob. And you guys deal with it. That's not what this is saying. What God is saying in this chapter is, I have chosen that those who believe in me are going to be saved. That's chapter 10, right? And I know this is profound. Chapter 10 follows chapter 9. Chapter 9 says, who are you to speak against God if God wants to make a vessel of honor or dishonor? So chapter 10 is going to tell us that vessels of honor are those who believe in him, those who trust in him, those who who confess with the mouth and believe in their heart that God has saved them, who call upon the name, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So election, God chooses those who believe. And if you don't like that, if you go, well, I don't like that. I think that God chooses individuals, not choosing those who would believe. And then I choose to believe. Well, God through his foreknowledge, right? Whom God foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. And so if God foreknew it, and again, that's Romans 8. So we go back to one chapter where God's talking about his foreknowledge and predetermining. And then you go to chapter 10 where he talks about salvation by faith and you can't take chapter nine out of the context. You got to keep it in the context. So God loves those who are of Israel, who are genuinely of Israel, who have genuinely made a commitment to him. And if you walk away from him, then you're going to put yourself in the category of judgment and wrath and anger, which is going to look like hatred or which could literally be hatred. Remember, God takes no pleasure in the, the death of the wicked. God takes, takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but he will judge them. He will cast them out into a place where there 
is darkness and gnashing of teeth where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And so God will bring judgment into those individuals even though God loves the entire world. So the real question between this passage, the passage in the Old Testament that talks about God hating the doers of iniquity and that God loves everyone in the world, how can you take those passages and put them together? Because once someone has rejected God and they're living in the world, they put themselves under the wrath of God and Esau, more particularly the Edomites, remember there's a whole nation that came from Esau. This isn't just two brothers, this is two nations, which the Edomites hated Israel and turned and rejected God and ended up falling under the judgment of God. And you go to the Old Testament and you could find all these passages that talk about God's judgment. So it's not just God saying of individuals, I've chosen to love Jacob before they were born and Esau before he was born. He's talking about nations and he's talking about people that have made decisions to live apart from God. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. It just means that they now fall under his wrath. The wrath of God is upon them um, because they don't really follow him or serve him. All right, Amy. So if you have a follow-up question, I hope that helps your husband. Uh, if you um, would like to ask a follow-up question, if we have time for that today, I would love to be able to um, perhaps go into a little bit more detail if there's some area that maybe I need to have a little bit more clarity uh, in that passage. So thank you very much. Uh, so our next question comes from Ashley. And Ashley says, um, are the extra books in the Catholic Bible worth studying? My husband grew up Catholic and often mentions books I have never heard of. Um, so I like the way that you, you, you word this. Um, are the extra books in the Catholic Bible worth studying? Rather than are they canon? Because the extra books added to the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, which means hidden, were not part of the canon to um, the Jews who put the Old Testament together. We know that the Septuagint, which is the Greek copy of the Old Testament, didn't have it in it. We know that the Vulgate, which is the Latin copy of the Old Testament, didn't have it in it. We know that the first century Jews did not accept the Apocrypha as being scripture. We know that the early church fathers did not accept it. We know that the Catholic Church added them in later on. They were not ever removed from the canon of Scripture, but they added them in. Um, personally, I think because it gives them certain passages that help them to support what are not what's not biblical, like purgatory and praying to saints and some other things that they try to justify through the Apocrypha. So I don't believe that they should be in Scripture and I don't believe that they were ever removed from Scripture. They were added in rather by the Catholic Church. The question is, these books, are they worth studying? And the answer to that I think is yes, because like the books of Maccabees and then you've got um, um, the book of Enoch and I think the book of Enoch can help you understand especially the first century um, Jewish mind and since the scriptures were written in the setting of the first century Jew then reading these can often help us and the Maccabees are great history and so you can can read them as a history book and they are helpful you might also be able there, there may be spiritual truth in them like reading a book today you know you might just be going like I want to read um, I've got a, a book on my desk about the temple it's a guide to the temple and has a lot of information about the temple and it's not scripture but I can learn more about the temple from reading from uh, Rose's guide to the temple so it's very helpful uh, so yes reading these other books can be helpful but very important they're not scripture and they should not be put into the same category as scripture and there's a lot of weird things in them you'll find that out as you begin to read them and look at them that they don't fit scripture I think it's also important when we're talking about the canon to, to realize that no one ever put together the canon. No one ever quantified it. No one ever said, this is canon. Or at least it wasn't done early on. In church history, the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament were put together fairly early in church history and accepted and received as the legitimate word of God. There was some question about the book of Revelation. There was some question about the book of James. 
Um, but other than that, there wasn't. And I, I think that what we have as far as the 66 books of the Bible is what we are supposed to have. And yes, um, Ashley, there could be uh, some benefit to reading these questions. And, um, but, um, but, but not as scripture and not with the same authority as scripture. All right. And um, first of all, I would say prioritize reading God's word daily. Prioritize making sure that you are receiving God's word daily um, before you are reading anything else. Um, sitting down, quietly, reading, praying, seeking God through his word is um, so incredibly important. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate your question. It's good to see you guys um, here. You can say hi to me. Let me know how you're doing in the um, in the comment section. Also, if you have a question, then you can write the word question down or put a Q or a question mark in front of it. And um, we will bring it in and take a look at it. So our next question comes from Catherine. And Catherine says, question, when you repent, do you say what you did or do you just uh, in general confession uh, you send? Um, all right, so thank you, Catherine. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I try to say what what I did. I, I, I try to, you know, when I, when I pray, I say, when, I, when I'm getting ready to pray, one of the first things that I do is a confession of sin. I just want to make sure things are right between me and God. For me, that seems to help. We know that the in the middle of the Lord's Prayer is asking for forgiveness. So I don't know that we need to do it to make sure things are right. It's just, I like, you know, building blocks. I like A, B, C. And so forgiveness of sin. And so, Father, I'm sorry um, that I, I was angry. I'm sorry that I got, you know, I got mad at that person. I'm sorry that I responded that way. I'm sorry that I, that I, I was so prideful with that. Please help me. Um, I'm sorry that I had that thought. So, yeah, I, I do. Um, but I will also, in a general way, because I don't know all of my sins. I have hidden faults that have dominion over me. The person that thinks that they know all the ways in which they sin probably has a lot of surprises coming in the future um, because sin, getting sin out of our life is like peeling the layers of an onion. Or if you're a Shrek fan, Parfait. Parfait has layers. Take, take the layers off. And so we can get rid of a few layers but there are still some more layers that the Holy Spirit is still working in, that God's still working in my life in the area of maturity. And um, so I do try to be specific. I think it's important um, in the area of confession that I can say what I, I know that I've been doing that are wrong. That's wrong. And I love in that passage, it says two things. God's faithful to forgive you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful to forgive you. This means God's saying, I'll do it. All you've got to do is confess it and I'll do it. I will forgive your sins. That's phenomenal that God will forgive you. And then he's just, and he's just because Jesus took our place on the cross. The atoning work of Christ upon the cross makes it just that he forgives our sins. And um, because we live in this world, because we, we walk and we do sin, because the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh. It's something that we've got going on in our lives that we need to take care of. And um, I think it should be a daily prayer, maybe even more than once that, that we say to him, Lord, forgive me. Because we should be talking to him regularly. We have so many needs that are in our lives and we need God's mercy and grace so much that we should be asking him for it. And when we do, I don't know that his grace or his mercy is contingent on us confessing our sins, but I just want to make sure I've got all of those things out of the way so I can receive God's mercy, so I can receive God's grace, so I can receive God's goodness in my life. So thank you, Catherine, um, for that question. And hopefully um, the way that I pray will help you out as well. All right. So um, we have a question from Tyler. Tyler, good to see you. Uh, Tyler says, Progress, pro, uh, progressive Christianity. What can we learn from the movement and what are the areas that we need, that 
um, we need to be rejected. All right, so thank you very much, Tyler and Tyler. Good to see you. Um, progressive Christianity. So progressive Christianity is a, it's kind of like what liberal Christianity used to be. Um, they are not conservative, which you get the idea from, from progressive. They're much more liberal in the way that they approach scripture. Um, they want to question everything rather than looking at what the Bible clearly teaches as being wrong. They want to stop and question it. And so within progressive Christianity, um, they're going to, they're going to question sexuality. They're going to question whether or not homosexuality is wrong. Um, they're going to, um, oftentimes will believe in, in abortion, that abortion is, um, is okay. And the thing is, is they will go to the scriptures and they'll try to show why we have been misinterpreting them. This is something that maybe is really unique to progressive Christianity in that they're trying to back up what they say with scripture. The problem is, you just take the, the topic of abortion. The problem is, the Bible says God created man in his image. And when he talked about corporal punishment for taking the life of an individual, he said, because you've taken the life of someone who was created in the image of God, then your life shall be taken. Life for life. So these little babies that are unborn are in the image of God. It's not like taking the life of a puppy in the womb. It's taking the life of someone created in the image of God. And they'll justify it um, by trying to find scriptures and ways around which we are more conservatively approaching the scriptures. And, and I'm not talking about political conservative or progressive. We're talking spiritual now. We're talking um, uh, religiously now. And you could be so, I think you could be so conservative that you can miss things. You can be so progressive that you miss things. But I think that there is a great danger in progressive Christianity. And um, I think like always, if you sat down and you talk to someone, there's some things that you can learn from them. But a lot of times they don't have a real commitment to Christ. They don't believe that they have to be born again, oftentimes. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying everyone. I realize I'm painting with this huge brush, right? And you always get yourself in trouble when you do that because someone's going to come back and say, no, I believe you have to be born again. You have to receive Jesus as your Savior. Um, they're going to believe um, more in your universalism, that everybody's going to be saved in the end. They're not going to believe in a literal hell. They're going to believe more in annihilationism, that God might punish someone and annihilate them. Um, and um, when, I look at, when I look at your question, Tyler, what can we learn from this movement? I think we learn that we want to approach the Word of God with integrity. We, we don't want to try to justify our behavior by trying to rework the Word of God. And in my opinion, seems like I'm saying that a lot in this particular uh, Q&A, in my opinion, it's, it's wrong to try to justify what I do by manipulating the Word of God and trying to make it say something that it doesn't really say. All right? So I think that we can learn that from progressive Christianity. I'm not sure there's a lot of positive that we can learn. I think it is um, something that will ultimately die because... Um, it doesn't affirm the scriptures. It doesn't affirm them as being inerrant. It doesn't affirm them as being what we need to live by. There are other things that they believe that we need to live by than the word of God. And once you start saying the word of God isn't inspired and isn't our guideline for believing, well, then what is? And why should you continue to go to church? Why should you even be have Christianity in your name? Why should you be a progressive Christian if you're not supposed to follow Christ? or the things that are written in the Bible, if the Bible doesn't contain what his word is. All right, so um, I think there's a, a lot of studying to be done on progressive Christianity. I know I wanna study it a lot more to have more clarity on exactly what they're teaching, um, but hopefully that is helpful, Tyler. I appreciate your question. Um, we have a question here from Karen. Karen joins us from YouTube and Karen says, my 13-year-old daughter asks, after Jesus rose from the dead and before his ascension, 
he appeared to his disciples and others. Uh, that's my front door opening up, my wife coming in, if you heard that. Um, so, um, hi, baby. Um, so, this is from Karen. Karen says, my 13-year-old daughter asks, after Jesus rose from the dead and before his ascension, he appeared to the disciples and others. Do we know where Jesus was in between these visits? And how did he travel? All right. So, um, good question, Karen. Um, let's take these. I got two questions here. Um, let's take, first of all, he appears to Mary Magdalene right outside of the tomb. We believe that at this point, he may have already appeared to the other women because Mary comes with the women to the tomb in the morning. Mary, when they see the stones been rolled away, Mary runs back to get the disciples, then runs back with Peter and James. And then when Peter and James leave, then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. So Jesus may have been appearing to the other women before that. Then he appears to Mary Magdalene. We also know that he appears to Peter at some point here in this day. We also know that he says to Mary Magdalene, stop clinging to me because I have to go. I haven't gone to my father yet. So I believe Jesus had to go up into heaven and sprinkle blood on the real mercy seat. I, the things on in the temple, in the tabernacle, were a shadow of heavenly things that are real, true, and genuine. And so I believe that there is a mercy seat that is up in heaven that the blood of Jesus had to be sprinkled on. And so Jesus had to go and do that, and he ascended. Ephesians also says, who is this who ascended, but he who first descended and brought a host of captives with them out of captivity. Some believe that Jesus is, that that passage in Ephesians is just a general aspect of Jesus descending to the earth, making salvation available, and then leading people into heaven. Others believe that it's talking about him going to hell or to the place of Abraham's comfort when Jesus told the what, what is a parable, looks like a parable, of the rich man and Lazarus, there were two different compartments, one where there was torment and one where there was comfort. And many believe Jesus ascended into hell, into that part, Abraham's comfort, and brought all of those people up into the presence of God. That before that, they weren't in the presence of God, that he took them into the presence of God. We also know that Jesus proclaimed to those who were in chains. This is in Jude and in First and Second Peter, we have passages that talk about Jesus descending. He did not suffer in hell. This is really important. The false teaching of the prosperity gospel says that Jesus suffered for us in hell, and that is not true. We, our sins are forgiven and we are given eternity by the shedding of his blood on the cross, the Bible tells us. Um, but Jesus did ascend and preach to those who were held in chains who did not keep their proper abode. Um, and so we do know that Jesus did ascend into hell and maybe even made an appearance to those who were in hell. Um, other than that, so Jesus goes up into heaven, ascends to the Father, is able to descend down into hell and ascend and bring people back up into heaven and then appear to 500 people at one time, to James, his half-brother, to Peter, um, to Mary Magdalene, to the women, to all of the disciples that are gathered together, all right? So that's um, what Jesus was doing before and after um, he rose from the dead, before and after the ascension. And then they gather together on the Mount of Olives and Jesus ascends up into heaven. Hopefully that's helpful. The second part of the question is, how did he travel? And um, I, I love the end of Philippians, well, it's in Philippians chapter three, where it says, the, I think it's the end of chapter three, where it, when it says that we are to eagerly await the appearance of our Lord from heaven, who will transform our lowly bodies into, into be like his glorious body. And the Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him. So we are gonna be like him. The glorified body of Jesus, although still holding scars from the cross, and they may be the only scars in eternity. If Jesus indeed has those scars forever, then they may be scars for eternity that are in heaven. But he could enter into a room with doors locked and windows barred. He could um, come alongside incognito and walk down the road with disciples and they were revealed in the breaking of the bread. When those two disciples came in and Jesus broke the bread, it says in the breaking of the bread, he was revealed. 
And that, a great concept that perhaps in communion with Christ, even communion like we take communion, there's a revelation, God reveals himself in that. We could talk about the elements as being part of that revelation, but it's very powerful. Um, but he, whatever, his new body, he could go in and out of rooms like kind of like an angel, like a spirit. Didn't need to have the the rooms, didn't have to have the door open to go in and out. And could seem to travel like a spirit travels, like an angel travels. And we are one day going to be the same thing. We will have similar bodies. We will respond and react in the same way. Our bodies will be like Christ. All right, so I hope that helps um, your 13-year-old daughter as you talk to her about the things that Jesus did. Um, you can go back and study the Gospels from the resurrection until the ascension and the book of Acts, and you will get a, a better, clear picture of um, what Jesus was doing during those times. All right, and you can also let her know that trusting in Christ will, will one day transform this lowly body. Jesus... Um, Paul gave us a better picture of what the transformation of the body is going to look like. This body is like a seed. And there's the glory of a seed, he said. Then there's the glory of the plant that comes from the seed. And so picture a seed, the picture of the plant or the tree or the flower that comes from it. Or that I guess that is a plant, but comes from it. And you can see it's much more glory. There's a lot more glory in the plant than there is in the seed. This body, it's just a seed. But there's a time coming when the plant will come out of the seed and I will have that glorified body with Christ. And I am eagerly, eagerly waiting the appearance of my Savior from heaven who will transform this lowly body to be like his glorious body. So thank you, Karen, for your question. I appreciate that. I hope that you are blessed. If you have an, uh, a question, you can write down the word question in the comment section, uh, and then you can write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then we will take a look at it. Uh, we have a question from Lisa. Lisa joins us on Facebook. Lisa says, question, is it true that we should not get tattoos? Leviticus 29, 19. Um, so, yeah, and let me you know, let's just go there. Let's go there and read that instead of me misquoting it, which I was about to do. Leviticus uh, 29. Leviticus 29. Well, I'm not going to go there. Um, Leviticus 29, 19. Is it 19? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, so Leviticus has 27 chapters. So, um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to go ahead and misquote it. <laughs> I'm going to paraphrase it. So in the Old Testament, um, people got tattoos in order to show their allegiance to their gods. And so there was a ban on getting tattoos. And I really wish I had the passage up in front of me here. Um, I could probably take time to find it. Let me just take a moment, if you guys don't mind, and let me see if I can find it. Where in the Old Testament does it tell us not to have tattoos? Scripture. So let me just see if this comes up. Leviticus 19.28. There we go. All right. So let me go to Leviticus. And um, let's see. Here we go. Back to Leviticus 19.28. All right. So I'm almost there. And... Um, All right, so we're going to pick it up here, and I'm going to just take a look and see whether I could get a heading here for it, or what they're talking about. All right, so let's just go ahead and read it a little, a little bit of the context, and we'll see if we can't figure this thing out together. All right, so I'm going to bring it up on the screen, first of all. I'm starting um, in 26. I just kind of want to get the setting, some of it at least. Um, you shall not eat anything with blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. All right, which would be like mediums today, people that communicate to the dead. You shall not shave around the sides of your beards. So again, other, um, other religions did certain markings for their, for their gods, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. 
So you see there, you shall not make any cuttings on your flesh for the dead, nor get marks, uh, tattoo or any marks on you. I am the Lord. So this is talking about the way that they were to serve God and stay away from the ungodly practices of the nations that were around them. By the time we get to the New Testament, we don't have any such restrictions. I'm going to see if I can get back to your question. We don't have any such restrictions. Um, and people today are not having tattoos for the same reasons that people got them in the Old Testament. And so I don't have a tattoo. My late wife had Jew 21 tattooed on her thumb so that when she's getting her hair cut or whatever, doing her nails done, when someone would say, what is, what is that? She would say, well, this is a passage that tells you to keep yourself in the love of God. And she would use it as an opportunity to witness. A lot of people can point to their tattoos and talk about the significance that they have in God. And because we have freedom, this is an Old Testament principle under the law that we are not bound to. Um, I, and, and, and culture has a lot to say with it. And he's talking, the culture in, in their day was one thing and the culture in our day is another thing when it comes to tattoos. And so, yeah, I think you could get tattoos that are wrong. Or you could get tattoos that are sinful, right? You could get tattoos that glorify ungodly behavior. You could get tattoos that glorify false gods. You could get tattoos that glorify yourself. Um, or you could get tattoos that glorify Jesus. And I would not condemn someone who got a tattoo that glorified Christ. I would just say, be careful um, because tattoos are a bit addicting. When you first get a tattoo, it looks great. It looks really good. And people are like, wow, what a great tattoo. I love your tattoo. That's so awesome. But then it gets dull. And so you get another tattoo. Then you get attention. Then you get another tattoo. Just be careful that you don't get addicted to that attention that comes from those tattoos. And I would really seek God and ask yourself why you're getting them and what the reason is. But the, the command in the Old Testament to not get tattoos would not be a command in the New Testament to not get tattoos. Okay? So, um, thank you very much. Uh, Lisa, I appreciate your uh, question. Uh, so, I, I see that you corrected the passage here a little bit later on. If I just scrolled down a little bit, Lisa, I would have found the passage where you gave me um, that proper place out of Leviticus. All right? Um, so, uh, let me see, Jari, I may come back to your question here. Um, I'm just going to see what else we've got. Um, so I'm going to take uh, next question from Jax. Uh, Jax, good to see you. Jax says, I'm so sorry to ask such a loaded question. Oh no, maybe I should have read it before I brought it on the screen. Um, I just can't, uh, not, uh, I just cannot get over, um, these two things. Affirmation of LGBTQ relationship rights and women being ministers. Is that impeding my salvation? Um, Jax, thank you. Um, no. First of all, I don't think that the Bible affirms LGBTQ. Okay? I think the Bible speaks against it. It doesn't say that those involved in those activities, homosexual activities, are an abomination, but it says that the act is an abomination. We get an idea in the New Testament when it says even their women did not uh, abandon the natural function of a man and burn their lust towards one another. So we get the idea of why it's an abomination because they're abandoning what's natural and it's a perversion. And a perversion simply in the sense that God made men and women, man for women and women for men in a married situation and anything outside of that is a perversion of what God intended. So that's not affecting you. Um, we want to make sure that we walk in love towards everyone, including those who are homosexual um, and also towards those that are in sexual, heterosexual relationships. Um, we don't want to mark them out as being more evil than anyone else, but we also don't want to accept the behavior. Okay? So you, so you can love the person and reject the behavior. Now, women being ministers. Um, 
I think that if you take the Bible, if you're a literalist when you're reading the scriptures, then you're going to lean towards complementarism. That's the idea that men and women have different roles, and those roles complement each other. And um, when you say women being ministers, Jax, I realize what you're saying, okay? And, and, but remember that the word minister means servant. And, and the Bible never says women can't be in ministry. Never says that they can't be servants spiritually. It says that there is the role between women and men in Ephesians, and it talks about um, having authority over men. And there's some uniqueness to those passages. And um, I, I need a little, I've got five minutes left in this Q&A, and I can't spend as much time on the concept of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Um, I am a complementarian. I believe uh, egalitarianism would believe that they're equal and that there's no differences and that all of the things the Bible says about women in ministry, women in um, as pastors, women in authority over men are cultural and that we're not living under those cultural um, aspects today. Um, and I would say, though, answering your question here, that this is an this is an open-handed discussion. This is a discussion between Christians, real genuine Christians. So, so when someone says, um, I believe that women can be pastors and I go to a church that's pastored by a woman, doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean that God's not using that woman. It doesn't mean they don't have the gift of teaching. It doesn't mean that they might not be better at ministry than men because they might be. I also believe personally that women can be pastors. I believe that you can have a woman who's a youth pastor or a woman who is a, um, who is a um, women's pastor. The Bible says, let women teach the young men and the younger women and children. And so there's no reason to think that they can't oversee in that way. And I also think as far as organizational skills go, you could have a woman who could oversee an area at your church. That um, You might have a woman who oversees hospitality at your church. And there might be men who may be working under her. And I think that that's okay as long as the head authority within the church is a man. So, and, and I also believe that there is a complementary, um, Jax, a complementary view that is dangerous, that, that is misogynistic, that isn't what the Bible ever wanted, that never wanted women to be treated in such a way. And I think a lot of churches that have this extreme complementary in view miss out on a lot of giftings that women could bring to the church because they are drawing such a dark line when I don't know that the Bible draws that dark of a line. All right, so um, this is a very broad topic. It's something that you should really spend a little bit more time, maybe Jack's looking into yourself, um, but I would not let that and, um, and I, I, by the way, I don't know that these two questions are that loaded, by the way. So, um, I don't know you shouldn't get over those things. Hey, we're walking in love towards others. There are people who don't believe what we believe, but they're Christians and they're genuine Christians. And I can have great fellowship, interaction, minister with um, those who believe that women should be pastors. And, should be, and it's not a problem for them to have authority over men. Um, I can interact with those who are LGBTQ. I can show the love of Christ. I can have friendships and relationships with them. Um, and it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be that main thing inside of me that I need to always be talking about. I, I really want to talk about Christ and Jesus setting people free. And there are people that do get set free from these things all of the time. All right. So thank you, Jax. Um, thanks for joining us. And thank you for asking your question. It's been good spending uh, the last hour with you guys. I see there are some other questions uh, that are still here. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and take time later on to look for future questions out of the questions that are asked, or you can join us for our next Q&A. We may have one on Wednesday. I don't know whether we will or not, um, but we will have one next Saturday, Lord willing. In fact, I know we won't this coming up Wednesday. We will not have a Q&A this Wednesday, but we will next um, Saturday. 
Okay, Lord willing. Um, I want to give you guys an invitation to join us for church in a couple of hours. Um, you can do that online, or if you're here in Tucson, you could join us live. It will be at 6 p.m. at our East Campus. Uh, we are looking at Luke 17, 11 through 19, and we're talking about the lepers who are cleansed and the one who returns. It's such a powerful passage and really helps us to understand the great love and compassion that Jesus has on people who are living in a situation that only God can help. These, the, these lepers had so many bad things that had happened to them. They were ostracized. They were unclean. Only God could make a difference in their lives. And so they called out for his mercy. And God met them where they were. And um, there's so much for us to learn. I really look forward to covering um, that with you tonight. So that'll be on YouTube, Facebook at six o'clock. We'll have a time of worship and then we'll spend some time in the word of God. Um, join us for church this weekend, all right? So God bless you guys. I'm gonna go ahead and sign off. It's been good spending time with you. Um, I hope the Lord really blesses you and um, see you again on the next um, Q&A next Saturday.